Um, just want to men- mention on Saturday, October 28th, if you're interested in coming from 9 to 11 a.m., we'll have like food or coffee or We'll have coffee for sure. That's not negotiable. But we'll have like food probably and very like, well, we'll have food, whether it be donuts or bagels. I have no idea. Um, but we'll love to have you that Saturday morning. Jeff Crosno, or Jeff Crosno, I was a different professor at in college. Jeff Stark is a professor at Olivet Nazarene University, and he's coming that Saturday to share with us. Um, he just wrote a book called uh, The News is Good. And so what's it look like for us, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, to live a life of good news and to share that with other people? And so how do you do that? What's that look like? And it's not some formulaic way, but how do you enter into relationships in loving ways with people? And so we'd love for you to come and be a part of that Saturday, October 28th from 9 to 11 a.m. I hope you're with us that Sunday as well, but we'd love for you to put that on your calendar and plan on coming that morning. Um, I was thinking about this morning as we think about our gathering today, how I'm probably the only one in this room that has ever had any regrets in their life. I'm sure none of you have anything you regret and you'd like to go back and change. And so uh, most of my regrets stem from my own selfishness. Um, I know none of yours probably do that as well. But I was thinking about one regret I have, and I still remember vividly parts of it. Other parts I have forgotten, uh, maybe for my own benefit, I'm not sure. But, but I was probably in middle school, uh, early middle school, probably sixth or seventh grade. And my parents, like, they, they didn't have a lot of money, and so they would, though, at Christmas, try really hard to buy gifts for us that we either had asked for or really wanted, um, and, and would go really above and beyond probably what they should have financially, because they just they wanted us to know they loved us, right? Um, I don't remember what I had asked for for one particular Christmas. I'm sure they got me what I asked for, but, but there was one other thing apparently I wanted <clears throat> that I didn't do a very good job of explaining or... Um, honestly, I was probably just a little ungrateful, um, if we're really honest. And, and they gave me, and I got done opening presents. I said, well, I didn't get whatever X was. And I said, I didn't get X. Like, I opened all this other stuff and should have been grateful. And, and my mom's like, well, I didn't know you wanted Well, that's the only thing I wanted. I was an ungrateful, spoiled brat. That's what I was. And I knew I crushed my parents in that moment. Because they had tried so hard, and here I was, like, just ungrateful. I was selfish. I was ungrateful. I wasn't appreciative. I missed the beauty of a moment because I was worried about what wasn't there, and I was complaining and whining about it. I know none of you complain or whine ever. I know that's just a me kind of thing. I get none of you would ever be the one who did that. In fact, I know none of you are the kind of people that go to restaurants and you've had a bad day and so you take it on the waiter or waitress because they're not perfect and so you're short with them. I know none of you would ever do a thing like that or send a meal back just because you're not happy with it and they've, someone made it work hard. I know no one does those kinds of things. I know people are just gracious to everyone everywhere they go and they never complain about stuff. I know that's just me who sometimes complains about stuff. But have you noticed how when you're with someone And hypothetically, that person might just complain about something at a meal. It just makes everyone else kind of a bummer for everybody else at the table. Or at the event. When the person focuses on all the negative and just complains about it, it brings everybody else down. And you're like, well, this is kind of a buzzkill. I thought we were having a good time, but now it's just kind of miserable. But what if maybe here's the reality? What if the complaining and grumbling while doing that, we miss the beauty of what could be? What if in the midst of our complaining and grumbling, we miss the beauty of what could happen in that moment? I was thinking about moments where you miss the beauty because you're busy complaining. And so years ago, before I came here, because someone didn't hear that part in the first service and was complaining to me that I was talking about them, I wasn't. When I lived in Illinois, I said, did you ever live in Illinois? They go, well, no. And I said, then you weren't listening. So um, 
When I lived in Illinois, uh, we had a, a breakfast on Easter Sunday morning, and, and um, it was great, and there were hundreds of people there. It was a cool event, and that afternoon, I took a nap, and um, because we usually had services Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we would usually take the Monday off after Easter, and so I was sitting there in my living room going, I don't think anybody cleaned up the kitchen. And can you imagine what biscuits and gravy would be like after three days if no one got it until Tuesday? It'd be disgusting. So I was like, well, maybe someone cleaned it. But I wasn't sure. And I thought, you know what? I'll just go check. So I got there. Everything was just there. Eggs and pans. Just gross, right? I mean, breakfast food sitting out was just gross like an hour later. Forget several hours later. And so I started cleaning. Two and a half hours later, I was not done yet. But I was grumbling with the best of them, and I was complaining, and I was irritable, and I was cranky. And I had this epiphany. I could have had like a beautiful moment where I was helping other people thinking about like that. Instead, I was so busy whining and complaining, grumbling that no one else took care of this, that I missed like this reality of I could have been celebrating the fact that people gathered together. Families gathered together who don't always come together. Some people only come to church on Easter, gathered with families and ate breakfast. And I could have been celebrating that instead of whining about it. But I was so busy complaining, I missed that. I missed the beauty of what could have been a cool moment. Maybe you've never done that. I mean, it's like I, some of you maybe can appreciate this. Um, my aunt's pretty organized. And, um, man, I just realized I'm going to tell this story. Hopefully they don't listen to it, but whatever. Um, I'll apologize later. So my cousin got married last summer. And my aunt's super organized, but it's not her daughter's wedding. It's her daughter-in-law, and so she has nothing to do with it. And so, like, there's just some stuff there. My aunt's not super last minute. They're kind of last minute. So it's this interesting combination of families coming together. Beautiful wedding. Great day. But the day before, they're like, oh, yeah, we need to cut the grass in the field that we're having the wedding. Like, no one did that. So I was like, I'll cut it. So I cut the grass in the field for the wedding. And it was kind of fun to watch all these things happen. It was kind of things just getting thrown together, and it all worked out fine. It was beautiful. But, you know, people were just tense because... But for me, it was just fun to watch, right? You could celebrate the beauty of a moment because when I wasn't really that invested, um, I had nothing to do with it. But there are other things, right? We miss the beauty of moments because we find ourselves complaining or grumbling and we miss what could be in those moments. And that's the reality of what we've been seeing over these last several weeks about the people of God through the Old Testament. And so we began this looking at the story of Abraham and God called Abraham and he said, I want you to be a blessing to the world. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. It's easy to call Abraham, then there's Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob changed his name to Israel. Israel has these 12 sons. He has the youngest son named Joseph, and Joseph becomes sold in slavery. He's the favorite. He ends up finding himself in Egypt. You've seen the movies. And there he is in Egypt, and he um, eventually becomes second to only Pharaoh. And then he does something that he should never have really done. He begins slowing the grain and buying people, creating slaves in Egypt of the Egyptians. And so guess what happens not long after, eventually there's a Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph, and he enslaves all the Israelites. And so when they should have gone back to the land that God had promised them, they stayed there in Egypt, and they found themselves slaves. They begin to cry out to God and say, God, will you save us? And the scripture says that God heard them in their groaning and their, and their longing to be released from their captivity, and God sent Moses to set them free. And Moses, all these miraculous kind of things happen, and they set free from Egypt. But the problem when you leave a place, sometimes the place doesn't leave your heart. And so the Israelites got out of Egypt, but the Egypt didn't get out of them. And so they find themselves in the desert, and over and over, in fact, the scripture says 10 different times they complained to God um, in the wilderness. And there they are in the wilderness complaining to God. 
And Moses continues to try to lead them over and over again. And they have this moment where they have this encounter, like this transformative moment on Mount Sinai, and all the people are there. And, and then Moses goes up and he spends time with God, and the people think, well, he's been gone too long, so we should make a golden calf. And so they make this golden calf, and they begin to worship this calf, and Moses comes down, whole scene. Aaron gives the worst line ever, and he's like, well, I don't know what happened. I threw all this gold in the fire, and how came this calf? No one believed it. Moses didn't even respond to it. But then we find the people, God says, okay, go to the promised land. And so off they begin to go to the promised land. And they get there, and they're outside. And Moses says, I want to send 12 leaders, one from each tribe, to go spy out the land to see what it's like. In fact, here's what the scripture says from Numbers chapter 13. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev on into the hill country See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. Right, so they go off. And then they give back this report to Moses. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Gev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. So they come back to give this report to Moses and they say, the land is everything God promised it would be. It's full of fruit that we didn't have to plant the trees. There are gardens we didn't have to till. In fact, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But those people are giants. Did you see them? Right? I don't know what to do with the Nephilim in Scripture, by the way. Like the giants, I don't, that's a whole other conversation. Side note, we can talk about it some other time. I really don't know what to do with it. But I was trying to think, well, what do we do with like giants in our day? And so maybe they weren't like really giants. Maybe it was more like something I experienced last year while coaching basketball. So here's a picture of what I'm talking about. Um, there's a guy who's 6'8", 6'9", and 6'10", and I look like a toddler. Maybe that's what it was like. I don't know, right? Could be. Or maybe it's like the Lord of the Rings with the hobbits. I, I don't know. Maybe they just were short people. I'm not sure what it was. But either way, what happened in that is their fear got the best of them. They were afraid. 
And because of their fear, they were scared to walk into what God had offered them. And maybe you find that's true for many of us, that our fear keeps us from something that could be so great, but we don't know what's going to happen. And if we walk into that, what if it doesn't work out? What if we go that direction and we fail? What if, what if failure is okay? And so they find themselves scared to go. And so here's what happens. And people are grumbling amongst themselves like they've continued to do this whole time in the wilderness. And here's what number 14 says. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. And the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. God has had enough. He said enough. Whining, complaining, grumbling all the time. In fact, it says ten times it happened in the scriptures. And, and so what do we do with this story? Right? I mentioned last week this scene between Moses and God. And Moses goes, God, don't you know who you are? Abounding in love, slow to anger. Right? Your love just can, continues. You're quick to forgive. God, don't you know who you are? By the way, it's a reminder for us why we pray, because it's like, oh yeah, it's as if the scene goes, God goes, okay, Moses, you're right, I forgot, I know who I am. I won't, I won't kill them all. I'll forgive them. And so he does. It's this incredible scene in which God and Moses have this conversation back and forth, but there is consequence, there's repercussion for the sin of the people who they continue to grumble against God. And I have some sympathy, because the place is barren. It is desert, as far as you can see. And I can only imagine how tired of that you would be if you continued to walk along that, right? They weren't driving cars, they were air-conditioned. They were sweating and walking and carrying all their stuff. And their kids were whining, complaining, because their feet were hurt and they were tired and are we there yet? Like, I can just imagine what it was like. But also, they had seen God do some pretty miraculous things. And so even in the midst of I have sympathy for the grumbling, they, they still were missing the big picture. And I, I have sympathy of this because I probably would have been grumbling and complaining as well. And so would you. Most of us would have been there. But the good news for us is God continues to be steadfast and faithful and forgiving and loving, which is what we find with the people. But then we find this conversation between Moses and God continues. Numbers 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. 
So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter into the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in the wilderness. Here they will die. Now, if you didn't catch that, um, the grumbling and the complaining of the people led to their death. Pretty sweet, huh? People were moving toward the promised land. They've been freed from captivity, but they continue to whine and complain. From the moment in which they crossed the Red Sea onward, ten different times in the scriptures, we find they complain against God. You can use a quick Google search to find them all if you want. They quickly moved on from what God has done. And what we begin to find is this. They keep turning back and becoming all the things they were never meant to be. Right, so I was in Jordan this summer, and one of the things I noticed there, because that's the wilderness in which they wandered most of the time, um, our guide said the same thing over and over again. She kept saying this, whining, complaining, gets you death, so I don't want to hear you whine and complain. Fair point. Like, I, by the third time she said it, I thought it was kind of funny, because every time someone in the group would go to complain, uh, and then it was, okay, so I'll just say this. I said the first verse, so I'll say it again here. It was the old people who kept complaining, and she said, by the way, in the scriptures, what happens is the old people who don't get to go... It's the young people who got in. Old people are out. Why? Because it's true. Old people complain more than young people. By the way, I turned 40 this summer, so I'm now in the second half of life. So, like, I can say that because now I'm an old person, depending on who you talk to. Some of you are like, well, yeah, but you're young. Not to half the people in this room I'm not. Like, I'm now old. It's weird. Ask my kids. Um... With this complaining and grumbling, it just keeps bringing them to the place in which they find themselves dying. But why does that matter for us? Because complaining is a sign of a lack of faith. Complaining is a sign of a lack of faith, right? It's this, in this text, we know it's the older generation. There, there's just 20, those over 20, by the way. So any of you under 20, like, sweet, I'm in. Those of you who are over 20, stinks to be us, right? Like, you're out. Again, the older people, you're out. I've had enough of your grumbling and your complaining. But it's the young people who get to enter in. And this brings us to our present reality, because here's what happens for many of us. It's really easy to whine and complain and be critical. It is. Most of us focus on the negative before we focus on the positive. That's just, for many of us, we're wired that way. Not necessarily good things, just true. In fact, how many of us, this has been our story, we have had this encounter with God that has changed our life. He forgives our sin. We've been freed out of whatever was held as captive. We find this new life in Christ. And not long, we become cynical and critical of other people. And we say things like this. Those young people today, 
in my day. By the way, in your day, if you're very old at all, you grew up in the 60s. They were way less respectful than even people today. It's like the same thing. Every generation says the same thing about the last one, by the way. It's been true for the last 100 years. I don't know about forever, but I know the last 100 years it has been. That's pretty well documented. We always think that this generation is worse than the generation before, and we just keep going down that line. And you go back and you look at stuff from that generation, you're like, huh, wasn't very good either. Go figure. But we continue to whine and complain. But what if, what if we learn to live rather than with whining, complaining, and grumbling? What if, what if we live with gratitude towards God, who does offer us freedom out of captivity? What if we learn to live with gratitude towards God? Because what he does is he takes us from whatever the Egypts that have held us captive, and he sets us free. And what if we recognize that when we complain and we grumble against God or against others, all we're doing is put ourselves back in captivity, back in Egypt. And he wants to free us from that, that weighs us down again and again. And this brings me to one of the hardest parts of this whole entire story. Moses, by far, all the way through, is this great character we see in the scriptures. He's the one we go look to. In fact, he's considered maybe the greatest between Moses, who wrote the law, and Elijah, the greatest prophet. Right? They're the, the two pillars of the Jewish faith, and they bring this into Jesus' day. They were the two you look to. And so Moses, right? he was the epitome of a great leader. He was humble. Like he was all the things you long for. And Moses, who's led them out of Egypt, he's dealt with their whining and complaining. He brings them to the promised land. But there's a scene that happens in Numbers chapter 20. And, and Moses goes to God because the people, again, are complaining and whining because they're thirsty. Fair, I get it. And Moses goes to God. He goes, God, what do we do? These people are whining and complaining again. Give us water, please. How, how do you want me to do that? And God goes, okay, Moses, I want you to speak to this rock and water is going to come out of the rock. And Moses is like, okay. And so he goes to the people. But Moses gets ticked at the people because they're just being themselves. And so he hits the rock with his staff twice, and water comes out. And then God says, Moses, you didn't honor me. You didn't honor the conversation we had. You didn't honor my holiness. And so because of that, you're not going to enter into the promised land. And if I'm Moses, I'm going, are you kidding me? I've been leading these people all this time. I'm sorry I got mad and I hit the rock. Have you heard them? Like, I'm pretty gracious and kind in comparison. I would have broke a ton of staffs on rocks if I was Moses. I get it. But he knew that wasn't what God desired for him. In fact, if what happens for most of us, it feels pretty harsh. And if I was Moses, I'd probably feel a little bit abandoned. But Moses doesn't respond like most of us. In fact, what he does is he begins to live differently. He empowers Joshua in all kinds of ways, and he passes on his leadership to him. He says, Joshua, you will be the new leader of the Israelites. He even asks God, God, will you raise him up? Will you do this? Even though I'm not going to be the one entering in, they still need someone to lead them there. Can Joshua be the guy? In the midst of what he could have been so upset about that he wasn't invited in, he doesn't. And so we, we see this scene at the end of Moses' life from Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. 
have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses didn't get to participate in the end of the journey. Moses leads the people all the way there, but he doesn't get to go in, right? I mean, most of us people aren't going to say about us, there's no prophet like Bill. Probably not going to say that about us. Like they said, there's no prophet like Moses. They're probably not going to say that about you and I. But what if, maybe the part for us to not miss, is Moses had blessed Joshua in such a way that he sent him on with his blessing to go lead the people into what? He had done all the hard work, by the way. But what if the greatest thing Moses did maybe was leave a legacy for Joshua to follow in his footsteps and to go, and the lasting fruit of Moses' life was seen well after he was gone? He continued to faithfully serve and follow after God. He passed on his leadership and his wisdom and his influence. He wasn't bitter or begrudging towards Joshua, but he wanted to leave a legacy that mattered. And so I was thinking, what if maybe for us, what if for most of us in this room, what if the best thing we ever do in life, we don't get to see the fruit of it? What if it's our job to lead people to such a way that they get to be a part of the greater event that we never even see? Right? What if we're kind of like Moses in this way? What if we, we cultivate lives and families and legacies? What if we're more about leading a legacy than having great experience? What if we pass on our wisdom and our influence to the next generation in a way that changes everything? What if we think, hey, they're going to do even greater things than me, and we're good with it, not bitter or angry or hostile? And it's in this moment that we're reminded that God never abandons Moses. He never leaves him behind. In fact, God buries Moses. It's the only time in Scripture where God buries a person. God does the work of doing that. But he does allow Moses, before he dies, to see the promised land, to see the place where the people are going. He can look and he can see and go, hey, Moses, you were faithful to me, and so I'm faithful to these people that you lead. In fact, here's where they're going. And so there's a quick video that just shows you from the top of Mount Nebo looking, and you'll see to your left is the Dead Sea, and then you can see... Jericho at the bottom, and on the far side, which you can't really see well in the video, is the city of Jerusalem. And so from this spot, you can see the beginning of where all the nation of Israel go in the promised land before him. And so on this mountain, Moses died. And he could have been so bitter about that, but instead what we begin to see is he sees the future of what could be for these people. He sees that God has been faithful and fulfilled his promise And so God's faithfully extended even to the end of Moses' life. And so I was thinking, for you and I, what's that mean for us? Right, great story in the Bible, cool, glad to see it, great for the scene, that's all great. But what what do we do with this story? I mean, the obvious answer is we don't whine and complain anymore, 
like we could, we're doing that. But what do we do, right? What, what's, what does it mean for us to be the unique people of God? Because that's the whole point. This whole exodus out of Egypt has been so these people will become the very people of God. To not only take them out of Egypt, take the Egypt out of them, so they become the reflection, the divine image in which they were created to be. Moses continued to try to lead them. We talked about the Ten Commandments last week about having the right heart. Like, we, we don't do the first four. We don't do these things because they're not about loving God. And we don't do the last six because they don't love other people. And so what's it look like to love God and to love people? Again and again, this becomes the thing that God desires for us. But the people are to be marked differently. We won't talk about how Abraham and his descendants were marked, right? If you don't know, that's okay. But they're to be marked differently. And then Jesus comes. He says, take up your cross daily, follow me. He's a whole sermon on the mountain. He gives all these things. And then Paul would be a follower of Jesus. And Paul writes these words. It might be a good reminder for us. He's writing to the very people of God known as his church. To you and I. And these words might be for us. And Paul even references Deuteronomy chapter 32 because the people are whining, complaining. And scripture calls them a corrupt generation. But here's what Philippians 2 says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Man, have you noticed that there's a theme in the scriptures about this? So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. And you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And Paul and others would write, the word of life is Jesus himself. We'll hold firmly to him become the people who come to know the fullness of God's love. In fact, how do we live as God's unique people? There are three things that might be helpful for us from this story. Number one, fear and complaining can rob us of what God has for us. We see it in the story all throughout the scriptures. Fear and complaining can rob us of what God has for us. Number two, we can live in such a way that we build something that lasts after we are gone. Number three, we see in the life of Moses, God is faithful all the way to the end. So I was thinking, what might happen if you and I invited God to lead us in our lives in such a way that we embraced his very mission in the world? I mean, what might happen if we took seriously this idea that we're not going to complain or grumble? What if we took that seriously? Can you, can you okay, just for a second. Can you imagine if those who are politicians who call themselves followers of Jesus or call themselves Christian, can you imagine if they didn't whine or complain or grumble or argue? How cool would that be? Side note, right? Like, but, but what might happen to us? What might happen in our homes and our workplaces if complaining and grumbling and arguing, what if we didn't do those? What, what if that didn't define us? What if we saw the good when others could only see the bad? What if we became encouragers where others could only be discouragers? What if we became the kind of people, rather than complaining again and again about whatever circumstances are in our life, we saw where God was bringing his kingdom into the here and now? What if we were the kind of people, rather than complaining and whining and grumbling? What if we lived in such a way that by the virtue of our lives... God's kingdom was breaking into the here and now, and he was restoring and redeeming and making all things new. What might our families look like? What might our workplaces look like? Our classrooms, our schools, our teams. What might the world look like if you and I embrace this idea that God calls us to be his unique people in the world, marked by him? And as Paul writes, we see in the story of the Israelites, it doesn't happen when we grumble and we complain, but 
what if we became God's unique people in the world, so radically transformed by the fruits of the Spirit that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? What if they were the markers of our life? What just might happen in the world in which you and I live? Maybe, just maybe, God's unique people wouldn't be looking for a promised land, but we'd find that where we actually are becomes the very promised land of God. What might happen if you and I joined God on that mission? What might the world look like? Father, we thank you for these moments which we've had together today, for the way in which you invite us to be your unique people. And so we pray today that you would help us to find ourselves surrendered to you in a way that would change everything. That your love would define our lives in such a way that we would look and sound and act more like your son Jesus. And so, Father, we ask today that if there's some areas in our life that we have not fully surrendered to you, that we might do so. That if we know that if our hearts, if my heart, is prone to whining, complaining, and grumbling. I would surrender that to you. And I would ask to be marked by your son Jesus in such a way that I would live from a place of love. And so, Father, will you help us to be the kind of people who live from that place, who are so radically transformed that we have become the very people of God. Will you help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name.